Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Theater Love is both out and proud and on the DL. Welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called Underestimated, and it is covering shows that either had mild success when they first premiered on Broadway, or no success at all, but have since gone on to have a long and healthy life. I'm your host, Matt Coplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. That's my best Blanche Dubois. And with me today as a friend of the pod, fan of the pod, please welcome Jonathan Chisholm. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, how are you, Matt? I'm well. How was my Blanche Dubois for you? Uh, you know, I felt like I was back in Georgia. Back in Georgia with the magnolia trees and the peaches and the people and the sun and the moon and the stars. Yep, that, that you've nailed it. Nailed it completely. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, where are we catching you right now? I'm in uh, Cape Cod uh, rehearsing Mamiya. Um, of course, though, right now we're having a minor COVID outbreak, so I'm in quarantine. So that's fun. But you're quarantined in Cape Cod. That's so exotic. Yeah, you know, it is. It's really nice. It's it, it actually I, it could be a lot worse. Yeah, I feel like Mamma Mia in Cape Cod is sort of a hat on a hat, like a beachy town doing a beachy show like, you know, yeah, you know, it has it has definitely been brought to our attention. We could just do this show on the beach. It would probably be better. Well. <laughs> It, it would be cheaper, but although you'd, you would be um, victim to the elements. But I don't need to tell you that. You're in quarantine. <laughs> Thank oh, you. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, what show are we discussing today? We're talking about a really happy show called Parade. Mm-hmm. A real fucking upper, if ever there was one. <laughs> uh, what is your histoire with Parade? Um. Parade was one of the first Jason Robert Brown shows that I was that I became super familiar with. I think I was given songs from it in, in college to work on because as a tenor, you know, they they like you to work. He, he writes for he writes for that voice a lot. Mm-hmm. It also and then when I got to know the show, I realized, oh, this is based on true events that happened literally like an hour from where I grew up. 
<laughs> oh, you grew so up like I, an hour I, I from Atlanta or Atlanta. You grew up in Atlanta? Yeah. Yeah. I'm from Rome, Georgia. So, which is about an hour. I, I visited Atlanta a lot. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's, and so once I found that out about it, I kind of just went down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out, find out everything about it. Cause it's a, it's an interesting, if tragic set of events. Yeah. It's, it is definitely a tragic story depending on who you ask, because um, the descendants of Mary Fagan definitely thought that justice was, if not served completely, that the correct sentencing was originally uh, carried out. And that's kind of a really difficult conversation to have. But we will get into all that in just a second. I don't remember exactly how I got into Parade. I remember when it premiered, when it performed on the Tony Awards. That might have been the first Tony Awards that I watched because I definitely remember watching Your Good Man Charlie Brown. You would have been too young, I'm sure. But the uh, Parade performance happened. I remember asking my parents, "What's that about?" And they just went, "It's really sad," because they had seen it. <laughs> and that was their whole thing. They were just like, "It's really sad. Don't ask questions." And so I kind of tucked it away for a long time. And like you know, the poster is very mysterious and sad. And I think I finally got into it in high school because, you know, I don't know what teenagers are like now, but teenagers in the early 2000s were all very into Jason Robert Brown. Yeah. And Parade is obviously, you know, one of the big ones. It's his first Tony Award. So I I started listening to it and I got into the story and the music is extraordinary. The story is very sad. Very true. And then I finally got to see it live when the Donmar production was done in Los Angeles at the Mark Taper Forum. I saw that with Lara Pulver and T.R. Knight. And I remember Charlotte Demoise was in it. She played Mary Fagan's mother. And that was very important to me at the time. Uh, I actually, I flew out to Los Angeles for the weekend just to see it. My dad lives in LA and I was in college. And I called him. I said, parades happening at the Mark Mark Taper Forum. Los Angeles people famously don't understand what good theater is. So this is not going to be a sellout hit. So we're getting tickets and we're going to go. And we did. And we went and we enjoyed it as much as one could enjoy parade. It's definitely like a, uh, a hard thing to say you enjoyed. It's like, that was an experience. Yeah, I mean, it, I think people equate, because joy is in the word, enjoy, people think, oh, I had a happy time there. It's like, no, 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 I am so very glad that I was here, but I did not, I, wouldn't, I was not feeling happy the entire time. Uh, you, it's, you know, you're seeing, if not necessarily perfect theater, really good theater. Um, and we'll get into that a bit when we talk about sort of the original incarnation and what went down with that and what the response was and then later versions of it so in a nutshell jonathan and i mean you don't have to shy away from the fact that it's sad you can say this the sad parts what is parade a boot well parade recounts the true events of the arrest and sentencing and eventual lynching of leo frank who is a is a Jewish man who who immigrated from up from north from New York into mm-hmm. down south into Georgia, and he is a he the the trial is a girl Mary Fagan as you've mentioned is uh, found dead in the pencil factory that he runs that he's the manager of, mm-hmm. and through media sensation and politi- and machinations of and also just you know bigotry. Uh, he is found guilty and sentenced to death. And his wife works tirelessly to, to try to, to um, get his um, 
I'm sorry, uh, to get his his sentence uh, to get the case relooked at by the governor, mm-hmm. and because there was clearly a lot of back backroom politicking going on, and eventually the governor does relook at the case and commutes his, his sentence from death to life in prison, which does not make the people of Atlanta happy, and a group takes it upon themselves to lynch him in near Marietta Square. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the show. And then the curtain comes down and everyone goes, consider yourself at home. I didn't realize how difficult that was going to be to, to explain. It's like a lot goes on in this show. A lot goes on in that show, and it's none of it's happy. It's all sad. I mean, there is humor in the show. You know, Leo cracks some wise. Lucille sometimes cracks some wise. And there are some peppy numbers, but it is not a heartwarming tale. They try. So in a lot of my research of it and sort of the angle they were trying to advertise the show as in 1998 to get people to go see it was that it was really the story of how Leo and Lucille fall in love with each other over the course of this tragedy because they got married through an arranged marriage. She's a Southern belle. He's from the North. They're both Jewish, but she being from the South, she kind of represses the Judaism. He's also uh, kind of nebbishy and anxious. And part of the reason why he also was determined to be the culprit in Mary Fagan's tragedy in addition to anti-Semitism and whatnot, was that he just looked so much the part of a villain. He looked kind of odd. He acted odd. People didn't like him in general. And so he was just a very easy person to say, like, it's him because it looks like it would be him. And they talk about that in the show a lot. And he kind of is able to come out of a shell a bit more in act two as, you know, doom is ever more approaching and they fall in love with each other. So, I mean, the whole romance thing is technically true, but I would not say that's really the angle of the show. And that was a huge criticism when it opened because they kept up being like, no, it's really about the romance. So a lot of critics went in being like, okay, let's see how it's about the romance. And then they walked out, they're like, it's not really about the romance. So when you go in at that angle, you think to yourself, the writers kind of failed, but they didn't fail because it's the show isn't about that. They just, they, they needed something to get butts in suits. And yeah, fun, fun times. The 90s were an interesting decade. Also just, I mean, that's exactly the one thing when I was doing research as well. I'm like, marketing the show could not, I mean, obviously it didn't run very long, but marketing it could not have been easy at all. No, I think what they were hoping for. So Parade comes literally in the last year of the 90s, which is a very, it's just a very specific decade in Broadway history because it's when American musicals are kind of still coming off the tail end of the mega musicals and we've and by the 90s we kind of figured out how to do that and make it our own if not necessarily these like international phenomenons like phantom and les mis they at least could be successful here so you know our ragtimes our titanics uh 
you know, shows like that, or even, you know, the shows that didn't run as long, but are still very well liked in the community, like our side shows and Scarlet Pimpernel's these, you know, big bombastic, important musicals with a lot with, you know, a lot of grandeur and big casts and big, big singing, heavy throats just coming at you from the stage. And the only way that parade was ever going to find an audience was through Lincoln center, which is where they premiered it. And there, I'm sure their hope was that they would word of mouth would grow from their, you know, three month run that they could then either extend the run or they could transfer it to another theater. And that didn't happen because word of mouth was very divisive with parade because it's sort of the perfect example for me of a show that was a bit of a victim of the decade it came out in because the only way it would have been produced was in the decade that it came out in, but because it was of the ragtime era of musical theater, the original production is a bit too big for the story that it's telling. It's like a cast of 40. It's if you watch videos of the original production, it's this like huge set with platforms rising up and down on the stage. Like I remember I was watching the video of um, real big news where Britt Craig is, you know, spinning the yarn of, you know, Leo Frank is clearly our culprit and anyone has information come forward and people start coming forward and how Prince just like had this, had the stage start like rising in different areas with any, with, you know, different people giving their tidbits. I'm like, you don't need to do that. We don't need a ride, you know, certain two by fours of the stage rising just so one bitstress can have a solo and a spotlight. Keep her on <laughs> the ground. We don't need that Hal. And also like Hal being Hal you know, metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor and just, you know, super large and looming. Like, I, do you know much about the original set design of Parade? The No, t- tell me. Well, he does a hair flip. So uh, the original set designer, I believe, was uh, Ricardo Hernandez. And the two major design aesthetics of the stage, so it was at the Vivian Beaumont, which for Uh, Anyone who doesn't know the Beaumont, it's the major Lincoln Center Broadway theater. So it has a thrust and then a ginormous backstage because the Beaumont was was originally built to be our national theater. So a lot of shows are going to be done in repertoire. So repertoire in repertoire. And so like on Tuesday, you'd see Little Foxes. Wednesday, you'd see Hamlet. Thursday, you'd see uh, Oklahoma and then rinse and repeat for the next like three months. And then a whole new bunch of shows would come in. So they needed that giant backstage to store all the sets. That didn't happen because America's trash and people don't know the beauty of a national theater. So that didn't happen. Uh, and so eventually when Lincoln Center got a hold of it, you know, no one really knew what to do with that stage because they're like, well, you have this intimate a thousand seat theater with this little thrust and this ginormous backstage area. What do we do? So for the most part, people just used the thrust and then carousel happened and they're like, oh, we could use the whole stage. And then throughout the 90s, that sort of became the thing. So with the parade that Hal Prince and Hernandez did, the set design was both the inside of a factory. So like stained glass windows everywhere and also a ginormous oak tree stood in the corner of the stage with all the branches looming out over on top of the stage. And you know what that tree is for. And Hal Prince even says like, that was one of our big mistakes was, was, you know, audiences came in and they, the first thing they saw was the tree. And most people going into parade knew what it was about. So they saw the tree and they're like, Oh fuck. Right. That's how this show's going to end. And Ben Branley even said in his review, he's like, it's the first thing that greets you. It kind of haunts all the proceedings and it's a design mistake. Because no matter what happens in the show, you're never allowed to forget where it's 
going, which on a thematic level, sure, I guess, but on a dramatic level, you kind of need that tension to stay engaged. If you're just sitting there for two and a half hours from the moment it begins to the moment it ends, knowing that Leo Frank is going to get lynched off that tree at the end, it's like, I can't sit here for two and a half hours. Um, and that was one of the major problems some critics had with the stage show originally was they were like, the writers have absolutely no question that Leo Frank is innocent. And they want to make sure we as an audience know he's always innocent. So even the people who are on his side, they never doubt him, which sure, that's all lovely and good, but it makes for zero dramatics. So we just have two and a half hours of people suffering and people being anti-Semitic and people being racist and there's no drama. And I get that. And watching the original production and how overblown it was, I'm like, yeah, I see why critics were kind of not on board with this. Uh, I think if you simplified a bit, kept the giant sound because I want that large orchestra. I want that large ensemble. But, you know, get rid of the tree. Just get rid of the tree. Um, You already are doing, that's like 50% of the work done right there. And, you know, uh, maybe don't constantly look to the audience and wink and go, see, prejudice. Maybe play it a little more on the human scale. And I think people will be a little more into it. But that's just me. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense from what I've, in terms of like researching things, like, it's like, cause I, you listen to, you listen to that cast album and it's, and, and it's just the music and just the, the storytelling that all the actors are doing. is just beautiful work that makes you, makes you one, makes, makes me wonder, cause I wasn't there, mm-hmm. how, why it wasn't successful. And, um, but that makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you, you know, it's definitely one of those shows where the cast album lives on and has garnered it the fan following that it has for good reason is it is truly an extraordinary score and it's a really good cast and it's similar to like the sideshow and ragtime uh casts where you have a lot of big throaty voices you've got your carolies who's just like what's you know what does through the mask mean? I just, I come, I sing from the vagina and it's like, yes, please more of that. And then you have Brent Carver, who's like, not really a singer. <laughs> He's a singing actor. So like everything he does is also from the throat. It's just not like, you know, the thickest of folds, Carolee Carmelo, but there's a personality behind it. There's passion behind it. And like, not all the voices are beautiful. Some are kind of rough, mostly the men, the men in the original parade kind of have rougher voices than the women, but it's hard to translate that now because so much singing now is done from a safe place, which I get and I respect because eight times a week is difficult, but I do miss some of the danger and I would like to invite a little bit of it back, but I digress. Let's get into a little bit of how we got ourselves some parade. Shall we, Jonathan? Let's do it. Let's do it. So tell the listeners who wrote our parade. This show was written Music and lyrics by Jason Robert Brown. Book by Alfred Urey. Yes. Do you know the other things that Alfred Urey wrote? Yes, Driving Miss Daisy. Mm-hmm. It's probably it's probably the most famous, most famous and most um, scoffed at today. Another funny thing about reading the reviews are the people who the critics who had issues with Parade were speaking very highly of Driving Miss Daisy in comparison, and today <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy is like kind of maligned by a lot of people so it's interesting right. to read those reviews in 1999 being like where's the nuance from driving miss daisy <laughs> so it's just funny to see how things change 23 years later um yeah no driving miss daisy is his big one that was his pulitzer prize winner uh he won the oscar for adapted screenplay for the movie uh the other 
two big things on in his rep are he wrote the book for Robert Bridegroom, which we know is Patti Lapone's first Tony nomination. The That's exactly she, what we know it for. Yeah, the show she got naked in. Uh, and he also got a Tony nomination for best book for that show, actually. And then he also wrote and won the Tony for the play Last Night in Ballyhoo, which I believe won the Tony the year before Parade. Maybe two years before Parade. Either the year before or two years before. But um, yeah, Alfred Urey's like a whole thing. I hate to say like shtick because it's not it. He's a very good writer. But the things that he's done that have got, gained the most prominence have been about the South and primarily Jews in the South. Because that's the thing about Driving Miss Daisy. She's a, uh, from a Jewish family. It's in the South. Last Night at Ballyhoo is about uh, a Jewish family trying to assimilate in the South because Alfred Urey is a Southern Jew. And the whole reason Parade came to be was because when I think he was either doing a reading of Last Night at Ballyhoo, I think he was doing a reading of Last Night at Ballyhoo and how Prince attended. And this is, I say supposedly because I've read two different conflicting reports of how the idea for Parade came to be. One report said it was always Alfred Urey's idea to turn Leo Frank's story into either an opera or a musical and approached Hal Prince. The other story is that Yuri was doing Last Night at Valley, who was doing a reading of it. Hal Prince saw it and he was like, I don't get why this Jewish family wants to assimilate to Southern culture so much. And Alfred Urey very casually said, probably because of Leo Frank. And Hal Prince was like, what's that? Who's that? What's that about? Who's, who's Leo Frank? And then Alfred Urey told him that story. And Hal Prince was like, I found my next musical. And both could totally be true. The, I don't, I think the timeline goes around 93, 94 is when they decided to do it because Jason Rapper Brown met Hal Prince around 93, 94 because Jason Rapper Brown was writing songs for New World. And, or rather, I should say, he was writing songs. He wanted to be a pop writer. And then he met Daisy Prince, who was trying to get into directing. And she was like, these are musical theater songs. And he went, huh, you're right. But they don't belong in a story. She's like, so we'll create a review. So they were shaping songs for a new world together. And Daisy Prince, famously daughter of Hal Prince, introduces the two. And Hal Prince is like, you're talented. Uh, Why don't you uh, work as the... Uh, rehearsal pianist for Kiss the Spider Woman. And then from there, he was like, oh, why don't you become the music director for this musical I'm doing at the public called The Petrified Prince? Have you heard of The Petrified Prince, Jonathan? I have not. Music and lyrics by Michael John Lacusa was done at the public from 1994 to 1995. It ran for like a month and a half or so. Lonnie Ackerman was in it. Marilyn Cooper. From what I gather, it was a pretty wild show uh, about a boy who saw his father, a prince who saw his father die, who's the king. His mother is the queen and she used to be a whore and she killed the king by essentially riding him to death. And it petrified the prince so he can't move or speak. And yeah, very Brechtian meets Tim Burton and the critics were like, the fuck is this? But it got Jason Harper Brown further into the room. And he says while they were while they were in between the workshop and the public production of Petrified Prince, that's when Hell Prince approached him about Parade because Sondheim was going to do it. And then Sondheim dropped out. My assumption is that Sondheim really wanted to work on Wise Guys. And also after Passion, Sondheim's like, I'm back to being lazy again. I don't want to work that much. Uh, so Hal Prince gave Jason Rubberum an opportunity to meet Alfred Urey uh, and bang out a song as in sort of an audition. He banged out one song, which he Jason Rubberum said was bad. Didn't end up in the show anyway, but it showed promise and that he understood the assignment. And then the second song he wrote was Old Red Hills of Home. And from there, they're like, great, you got the job. 
And uh, Jason Robert Brown is pretty sure he wouldn't have got the job if Yuri and Hal Prince were not so insistent on getting parade done as soon as possible. They were like, we're, we want to, we want to like, if we, if we stall, this will never get done. So like who, literally the next person to walk through the door who has an iota of talent gets the job. And so luckily that ended up being Jason Robert Brown. Uh, and then they ended up working on it for five years, I think four or five years. And they do a reading in Philadelphia. They do a reading in New York, and then they do a workshop in Toronto. Now, why the workshop in Toronto, you ask? And you do ask. Why the workshop in, why the workshop in Toronto? Because one of the co-producers for Parade was Livent Inc. Oh. Yes. And do you remember who's the founder of Livent? Um, Garth Drabinsky? Yes, sir. The very same Garth that is currently producing Paradise Square and not paying benefits to anyone in the cast or crew. Uh, But that's, you know, just Garth up to his old tricks again. Yes. So he kind of funded Parade during all the 90s while Ivan was still riding high with Kiss of the Spider-Woman and Showboat. And right after Ragtime opened in 97, that is when the IRS started catching on to his shenanigans. So Parade was sort of like his last hurrah before he fully got shut down, which was bad news for Parade because while they were working on it, you know, it was a very prestigious hush-hush situation. And then just as they were going to come to Broadway and Lincoln Center swoops in to say, you know, we'll co-produce this, produce this with you. The stink of Drabinsky and Livent is known all over the boards. So not only are we getting a musical of Leo Frank, but it just so happens to be co-produced by Garth Drabinsky. So everyone on Broadway is like, this smells like flop sweat to me. So they had a lot going against them. And a lot of reviews even mentioned that. They're like, we are pleased to inform you this is not a disaster. But a lot of reviews also said, we are unfortunately going to have to tell you it's not as good as we hoped it would be. But yeah, that's a, the road of parade is not necessarily tumultuous. It's just long, which is my least favorite kind of journey for Broadway. Because it's like, at least tell me, you know, who got fired, who got rehired, how they had to throw the set away, how they had to scrap the whole score. Like, it's what I love about the whole smile journey is like, Hamlish had to write a whole new score once Mar- uh, Howard Ashman came in. But like, Parade is just, I don't know, we did two readings in a workshop and we wrote a lot. <laughs> we just kept writing. Yeah, that's not nearly as exciting as one would hope. <laughs> really, it isn't. Um, you know, it's the... A lot of fun people came in and out from the cast. I know that Jen Maxwell at one point got to do a reading as Mary's mother. She has, there was a, there's a great video of her talking to Seth Rudesky about it. And her story is great. Cause she was just like, for some reason, she was just like the most pissed off the day she went out to audition. And it was, it was for the reading in Philadelphia and they were doing it. The auditions I think were happening in the basement of Lincoln center. And she just came in and she was like in a mood and they gave her, the monologue that would eventually become my child will forgive me because that's sort of how they worked. Very Sondheim-esque where it's like, you know, Yuri and JRB would talk about whatever scene that was going to have a song in it. Yuri would then write the scene and then a monologue for where the song would go. And then JRB would read the monologue, get inspired and then write his own set of lyrics to it. But so Maxwell read the monologue. She's Jan Maxwell or what she was Jan Maxwell. So she, you know, knocked it out of the park and Hell Prince was like, uh, how do you feel about going to Philadelphia? And she goes, Philadelphia? For how long? About three weeks. Three weeks? Like, yeah, well, would you want to come? I'd love to. Like, just every answer was just so angry and and um, incredulous. I have to go to Philadelphia? P- 
paid for three weeks doing this show. I'd love to do it. <laughs> like that's if ever there was a Jan Maxwell story, that's a Jan Maxwell story for me. Big news, my savior has arrived. My intuition's never been so strong. Big news, my career has been revived. All I needed was a snippet pissing Yankee all along. Take the superstitious city, add one little chew from Brooklyn. Plus a college education and a mousey little wife And big news, real big news That poor sucker saved my life That's sort of the whole uh, trajectory. I guess the only major like thing with the writing was that when they first started writing it, Leo Frank never sang. That started happening, I think, after the second reading or, um, and during the first workshop. He first had no songs because there were like, this is not a character who sings. He's so buttoned up. And then they eventually found a way in and found songs with him. One of the major criticisms at the time was that he didn't have enough to sing. Uh, and JRB was like, I don't know. I, I think we gave him plenty, which I, I would agree with. It's not the fact that he doesn't sing enough. It's a, it's more the attitude of when he sings. Uh, and also, you know, like any Hal Prince production, Hal, uh, Hal thought of musical cinematically, which meant JRB thought of it cinematically. So he kept on thinking of the movie The Wrong Man as he was writing the music to keep it flowing. And Hal Prince kept thinking of Citizen Kane, which tracks for Hal Prince. He would think of an Orson Welles movie as he's staging a musical. Why not? Yeah, everything just clicks into place a lot more with that imagery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Hal, I, could you not think of Working Girl? When you're directing a musical, you think of all these movies, you think of Citizen Kane, you think of <laughs> the third man and the wrong man. Could you not think of, you know, shampoo or E.T., something a little more color to it? I don't know. Just a suggestion. He's dead now, so he can't take it. But he would have if he were still alive. Oh, Lord. I actually have a fun Hal Prince story. When I say fun, it's short. I sang for Hal Prince my senior year of college. I was at Emerson College. And our head of department was doing a Q&A with Hal Prince at the Museum of Fine Arts, where they would sort of talk about his career. They would show some video footage. And something that Stephen really wanted to do was have two montages of singing through the career of Hal Prince. And the second uh, medley was, you know, from, I think it was from Follies Onward. And then the first half of the medley was from... Uh, pajama game on uh, for pajama game through company and the first medley was myself and my classmate Chelsea Williams and we sang and we did very well it was very nice but backstage before the show began it's us with the two other adult Boston actors sitting in the green room with Hal Prince and our music director John and Hal's you know telling stories most of which I already knew because I am me and he was trying to remember the name of somebody and I answered it for him and then like backed it up with a couple of facts about said person trying to contribute to the conversation and he gave me a look that read a hundred percent as thank you for that but I'm not here to listen to what you know I am here to tell you stories so I shut my mouth and I pretended I knew nothing for the rest of the 20 minutes before the show began. He didn't say this openly, but his look very much was like, thank you very much. Now be quiet. People of Atlanta, 
let's get into the show. It opened in 1998. Critics weren't super pleased with it. Some really loved it. Some did not. But let's talk about the show itself. What's your favorite song in Parade, Jonathan? Oh, that's really hard. Uh, I, I, I think for sentimental reasons, because it's the first song I had to sing from it, it's probably The Old Red Hills of Home, mm. which is, you know, probably pretty stereotypical. You know, again, tenor singing this really pretty song. Sure. Uh, uh, but I also really love um, You Don't Know This Man. I think it's a, such an interesting song for a really interesting character that is mm. Lucille. It's a great song. So of the two, which would you want to discuss first? Um, I'm uh, let's can we want to do the Old Red Hills? That's like the I mean, it's like the song that kind of started JRB's like into the show kind of, you know, like it's a it's a beautiful song that then you kind of hit you what it's about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing about Parade is that it doesn't really sound like a Jason Robert Brown score for the most part. There are little touches here and there. Where I'm like, that's him. So like the intro for real big news, that like piano thing sounds very similar to the piano in um, moving too fast in the last five years. But I think because parade is both a period musical and also um, from the nineties of bombastic, like we're doing the mega musical, but not totally. It's a very different sound. It's probably has more DNA with bridges, but even bridges is like, probably has more DNA with Light in the Piazza than it does with Parade. Um, yeah, Old Red Hills of Home begins with uh, a drum revelry, right? Is that the correct term? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not straight. I don't know. But it's the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's the opening image is a Confederate soldier singing to his beloved as he's about to go off to fight in the Civil War, which is, that's another thing about Parade, which is like, it's it's not overt, but it is sort of an underlying theme of the show that like the Civil War was just 50-ish years before the events of Parade happen. And that's not a lot of time. We think of like, that's literally going from saying like the events of 1970 to today. Like a lot of our parents were alive for that. Our grandparents were definitely alive for it. You know, it's not that far away in history. And so the fact that they lost the war that it ravaged the South that used to have like a very um, used to have a certain kind of dignity. I mean, a corrupt dignity to be sure due to, you know, the slaves that it was built upon, but in a lot of white Southerners minds, a dignity that, you know, they'll never get back that they hope to reclaim one day. And so most of the show, you know, they find it in a weird way. It's like a triumph for the racist anti-Semitic South because they begin with like, one day we'll have the the glory that we once had. And then when the show ends, we're like, we got the glory again. We're back, baby. It's like mame, but nightmarish. Yeah. And, you know, and that it, it is a very Southern trait for sure. Uh, I, I talk, me and my, my parents have this discussion all the time because they, they, they were raised from birth in the South. I traveled around because my dad was stationed at different places mm-hmm. so i don't have necessarily all of the southern pr- pride and you know like whatever that they do and certain times we talk about you know certain symbols and things like you know confederate flags and things like that and there's like no it's our heritage it's it is definitely a very distinctive southern trait of this yeah. the yesteryear yeah especially for 
white Southerners, they like to think of the positives that uh, certain toxic symbols represent. They don't think about the other things. And I get that because as humans, we try to go where the love is and where the warmth is. But you cannot deny the other part of, of those icons of those of those symbols and to deny it is um is a problem i don't like to use the word the term problematic super often because i find it's overused but uh i think it applies here it's problematic uh because that's that's burying your head in the sand and choosing to ignore the um you know the casual slavery that was abound in the south that those that those symbols represent i mean there's a great episode of the golden palace that talks about this where blanche on memorial day puts out a confederate flag and don Cheadle's like the fuck is this and she's like what? i remember it's, that yeah she's like it represents my cotillion and all the things like to her it's scarlet o'hara it's you know being the bell of the ball and don Cheadle is like no 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 it, yes it includes that but it most importantly is a representation of like reminding my people where we came from and oppressing us and then of course finally a southern guest tells blanche like good on you for telling off that non-white person and blanche is like oh shit i'm in the wrong but it's as if all of america also didn't watch golden palace jonathan i think it's just us yeah that was that was sarcasm everybody golden palace famously didn't do well on network tv most people didn't watch it just the gays but um yeah, no, that's sort of the whole point of Old Red Hills of Home is it begins with the Confederate soldier in his youth singing about going off to fight. And it's with the optimism of we're going to defend our pride and our dignity and our honor. And then we flash forward 50-ish years and now he's an old man and we have our Confederate Memorial Day parade, uh, which Leo very rightfully points out. I don't know why you have a parade uh you know, celebrating that you lost. I, I, I've said that so many times in my life to my parents. I'm like, why are we, why? It, we, it, we lost the war. Get over it. Yeah. Because it's not as if they're like, oh, we've learned from losing and we understand that we were in the wrong. No, 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 no. That's not the point when they have these parades. I'm like, what are we celebrating here? It's just like, y'all, we survived and we're great. We have Scarlett O'Hara. We have uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. We have, we've we've got literature up in mirror and I just don't get it. I don't understand it. That song yeah. Big D from Most Happy Fella, that's about Texas. That's in the South. Unless you ask like a Georgian, then Texas is like its own thing. <laughs> well, Texas is its own planet. But they do have that great song, Big D. Say Neiman Marcus, Neiman Marcus. What is like culture like in Georgia? Like what's sort of the, the vibe there with people? Like is, is it truly Southern hospitality or is it more sort of a bless your heart kind of situation? I would, it really depends on where you are in the state because like Atlanta and North, it feels more, it, it is uh, much more, I think um, what that bless your heart, you know, Oh, you know, it's like, Oh, they shouldn't have worn. Oh, she's wearing the wrong shoes to church. Bless her heart. Mm-hmm. And then, the, then the South Georgia, the, below Atlanta really just turns into like um, exactly what you think in terms of like really like the stereotype of like Southern people in terms of like not I won't say uh, racist necessarily but just like really bigoted ideas 
and just like backwards views on things. They just have it like evolved with yeah. the times. It's it, and it's it's not. You know, are we? I our joke in Georgia is if South Georgia and North Florida combined, that would be like its own because they're very similar. Mm-hmm. Like South Florida is nothing like Northern Florida. No, and so it's like it. So it really just depends on where you are in the state. There, but one thing I will say is that this the idea, like I've said earlier, the idea of this pride of being a Southerner, being a Georgian, is very still very present in in the older generation, my parents' generation, and especially my grandparents' generation. Yeah. I mean, the thing about bigotry is that it's just, it's very simplistic. It's a simplistic viewpoint. And it shows that people aren't willing to have conversations and understand nuance. They would rather have simple, concrete concepts for everyone because it's easier to live that way if just everyone is one thing and I don't want to think about it. And so it's just sort of frustrating on my end where I'm like, but don't you want to learn about people? There's so many things to learn in this world. And so that always bugs me. And you learn that with parade where no one ever wants to ask the questions. No one ever wants to actually investigate. They just want simple answers. And we see that all the time. I mean, I don't know. And I don't want to color just like, you know, right-wing bigots that way like progressives can be very simplistic as well we're just like no if you if you do this then you're supporting this which means you're doing this if you if you bought that sandwich from that restaurant chain then that means that you're a homophobe because you just supported a chain that does this and that and that it's like well sometimes also you know you can't not give your money to something that's awful because all like the awful corporations happen to just own everything so you know Sometimes say, that's just, just capitalism. Doing. Yeah, that's just capitalism, baby. There are some there are some chains that are just a little easier to steer clear of. I will truly never understand people who go, but Chick-fil-A is so good. I'm like, it's literally just food. Everything is just food. You poop it out later. You can find something else to poop out later. I guarantee you, especially in New York City. I'm like, we live in New York City. There is so much. It doesn't matter how good it tastes. You can find somewhere else because you're just going to poop it out later. That's the theme for today, everyone. I hope you all take it away with you. A Yankee with a college education by his own design is trapped inside the land that time forgot. Trapped inside this life and trapped beside a wife who would prefer that I said howdy not shalom. Well, I'm sorry, Lucille. But I feel what I feel And this place is real So how can I call this home? Yeah, I mean, like, JRB Does he ever do, like, choral music like this ever again? I feel like it's not even There's nothing in Bridges that's even this, like, large in choral, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, he really, the sh- his shows, you know, uh, I mean, he goes right from this to last five years, which is two people, you know, yeah. so, you know, so it's like, I don't, I don't think so. I, I mean, I can't, nothing that I recall. I'm, and especially just, well, like you said, the cast, the original cast of this was like, was 40 people. Yeah. I mean, just how often do we get that anymore in general? Uh, Paradise Square, actually. Paradise Square has a cast of I was 40. just, I was, I, I was leading you there. Yeah, you really just want me 
to shit all over it, don't you? I told myself I would stop <laughs> doing that on this podcast because no way is that show going to be on this series. And at this point, like, they don't need me to continue talking shit about them. Uh, everyone in that cast is so talented. They're all amazing singers. I can't wait to see what the next show they're all in is. Uh, that is what I'll say. That is the last thing I'll say about it, Jonathan. Stop pestering me. God. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's how I got on this podcast. It is true. That's how you got on this podcast. One day you said, I'd love to be on the podcast. And it went, bless your heart. And then about a month later, you said, no, but really. And then a month later, you said, I have your cat. And if you ever want to see your cat again, you'll put me on your podcast. <laughs> I hate that cat jokes on you, bitch. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's nothing else to say about older Hills of Home. Um, you don't know this man. So at what point in the show does you don't know this man pop in? It's right after uh, Britt Craig's uh, real big news where he stirred up, he stirred up the entirety of Atlanta mm-hmm. to be against Leo. And he finds Lucille. At, Lucille is dealing with that fact that her husband is in jail and is being accused of all these things. And he tries to get an interview with her. And her response to what he's been doing is this song, You Don't Know This Man, um, which it's a fascinating response because I, I think there's the, the line that Britt Craig says at the end of it is like, you said all these wonderful things, but you didn't say he didn't do it. Yeah. And I just think that's an interesting way for it, sh- it shows like this woman's mindset at this point. Yeah. The thing is, is like that line is great if it was meant to sort of invoke a sense of uh, unease with her or um, maybe some sense of doubt, which she never really has. She's actually kind of insulted that he says that to her because then she, her final line is like, I've got nothing more to say to you and walks away. Um, right. I would like it if they played into the doubt more on that. That song is, is a great, like it's, it, there are songs in musical theater that I would call Medea songs or Electra songs, songs that are like, I am a singing actress and I'm going to sing act all over your face, all over this floor. I'm going to give you from the vagina vocals. I'm going to give you acting that is pointing and declaring. And sometimes it works and sometimes it don't. Um, This is a song where I would say on a chemical level, it actually works quite well. On a dramatic level, I have questions. Here's the tea, Jonathan. When parade begins, when we first meet, Lucille and Leo, you know, our little, a cute little Jewish married couple. They're not like necessarily getting along super great. Um, they have sort of a marriage of convenience. Cause again, they were, they were set up. She comes from a family with a lot of money and he was sort of an up and coming Northerner uh, and moved to the South to marry her. And he kind of doesn't think much of her. He thinks she's sort of silly, which she is. She kind of grows up over the course of the show. And she thinks that he's very impressive, but I don't necessarily think she loves him, loves him yet. That's sort of what that whole song they have at the beginning after How Can I Call This Home, whatever that song she sings in Counterpoint with him when he's like, he's tallying all the grosses or whatever it is in the factory. And then we don't- What am I waiting f- for? What am I waiting for? Yes. Um, they have one more scene after that when he gets brought in for questioning. And it's it's just a sort of like, what's going on, Leo? Um, also, I can't do I can't do Carolee's Southern accent because 
every time I do it, it just goes into like Irish Scottish. So every time I try to do her do it, every try to I time I try to do her do it alone, Leo. I'm like do it alone, Leo. Why should why should it bother me? And then it just becomes after all, so many people love you. They're dancing in the streets, Leo. I can't do it. I can't do it. It just becomes Scottish Irish. They're dancing in the streets, Leo. So when she does, you don't know this man. It's such a fierce defense of him. When I want when I've seen the show and I've now seen it twice. I'm always like, it feels a little too much energy for the task, which is a term that I introduced listeners to last time with Sideshow. Uh, just like a lot of energy for the task and a little like, I feel you. I feel you, girl. But I don't know if I understand where this is coming from based on what we have seen. When you listen to it, when you listen to the cast recording, you haven't seen the show. You're like, work, bitch, work. But when you watch the show, it's a little not disingenuous because the emotions are true. But for me, I watch them and I go, I feel like we haven't done enough work yet to get you here. She, she can be, you know, frustrated and overwhelmed, but to be so like fiercely, he is an honest man. He is a decent man. Um, and also that's just Carolee's portrayal. I don't think Carolee understands that sometimes when you sing, you don't have to, you're not at the Muni. But that's also why we love her. That's why Carolee Carmelo is a three-time Tony nominee. And yeah, it's true. And survived doing Mamma Mia for four years. I would be so lucky to survive Mamma Mia for four years. I would <laughs> swap places with her instantly. She survived Lestat. She survived the Adams family. She survived Scandalous. And she survived Tuck Everlasting. She is a survivor. Just she's She is who Beyonce wrote that song about. Yes, yes. See, you went to Beyonce. I went to Reba. So I think that... <laughs> Reba has a song called Survivor. I'm a survivor, yeah. I I do know that Reba has a cover of Beyonce's If I Were a Boy, and it's delightful. It is. It's very good. Yeah. Reba's a good singer. Hot, hot take, everyone. <laughs> Reba McIntyre. Good singer. Oh, Lord. Let's get that bitch back to Broadway. Come on. Do it, Breebs. You know you want to. Mm, I know she, she's she's just when you listen especially when you go back and listen to those recordings from Annie Get Your Gun or just the video she's so good oh, she's so good and she I mean listen if, if the girl is willing to play Trish for five seconds and Barbara Star go to Vista Del Mar she can come back and do Best Little Whorehouse in Texas she owes me that she owes me so much What is it about you don't know this man that you love? And do you disagree with me about all of, of everything I said? Because you can. No, I actually, I do agree with everything you're saying. I think what it is definitely exactly that. It almost is operatic in terms of its writing. It's like an emotionality. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of like making it work better in the show, I think that could come, you know, it, without just rewriting the show. Uh, it's uh, just is directing uh, is direction in that point and characterization because I think I think you can make 
that the emotion she's feeling because it is again we've said she's so harried she's been she's being dogged by Brett all these people wanting to hear her opinions on her husband and it can almost feel like it comes from like we have this thing but there is this real I agree not necessarily love but a certain respect which is why you know the the lyrics she does say she you know doesn't really ever say she loves him she just says no he's he does these good things yeah but i do but i agree yeah i yeah yeah it is it is a very high high stakes for so for so so relatively early in her arc as a person yeah there's also so when you're writing a musicale you sometimes have to ask yourself how long does it make sense for another character to stand there and take what this person is scream singing in their face? And I would argue you don't know this man is a solid version of that because while she does sing in his face for about three minutes, it doesn't get big until the second half. She's able to kind of temper it a bit. Um, but I think in the wrong hands, I think with an actress who's maybe feeling herself a bit too much, with a director who wants to really uh, make it over, like wants to take that Hal Prince tree and make it even bigger and darker and shinier, you could definitely make this a bit of a jerk off song. But I think that's sort of the danger with JRB in general is like he, he has written some amazing stuff and he's written some stuff that I find a little indulgent. But even the amazing stuff, it is so easy. It is so easy for a good singer who's a bad actor to just like think I'm going to piss all over this stage. And I'm standing here going, this is not Tunnel of Love. You're not Alice Ripley belting an F. No, wait your turn. But that's just, no, that's sort of where we're at now. But you could argue that the sort of succession of ragtime, sideshow parade, Jekyll and Hyde, you know, Scarlet Pimpernel from the late 90s ushers in the era of the big emotions, big singing. And then once we get into sort of the hairspray through Legally Blonde era of pingy singing, it becomes, we have this contrast of like, when I'm doing dramatic acting, it must be squatting down, throwing my arms in the air so my larynx can really stretch so you can be impressed by how big I am right now. And then when you're doing sort of cutesy comedy stuff it's all through the mask and it's all very but what do you mean hand on hip uh and then some people also get confused when they mix the two i won't name names but there might be an ingenue actress out there who i saw in a show who tried to be different uh and not cutesy and went for the big squatting like arms out in the air kind of thing this might have been on broadway may not have been and i just was sweetheart no no you don't have an invisible beach ball and all of your secrets are in there. She just kind of kept her arms hunched in a circle the entire time. And went, you don't have a secret, uh, a beach ball full of secrets. This is no, just be a person, be a person doing the thing. You're in a big woolly coat. Just wear the big woolly coat. You're fine. I, uh, you know, I, I can't, I can't uh, disagree with that. <laughs> um, I hope I made it vague enough. So no one comes for me. Cause I know that this person is a favorite of others. And I do think she's talented, but I saw that performance. I'm like, I see what you're trying to do. And I respect that you're trying, but um, you need a director to tell you, no, you don't always need to have a beach ball full of secrets. Anyway, moving right along. Uh, what is your favorite Leo song? 
Oh, hoo, hoo. Uh, my favorite Leo song is probably Come Up to My Office. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly enough, that is the song that both critics from the Times pointed out to be like, this is the moment the show truly comes alive. Because for a brief second, the actor playing Leo Frank, the late great Brent Carver, gets to like be something other than a victim and gets to kind of let loose on stage. And also the audience gets to see what Leo would be like if he was the villain they're making him out to be, which gives you dramatic fever. You're like, ooh, oh, here's something new finally. And then like, and as soon as, just as soon as it begins, it's over. And I'm like, right, you're not wrong. And then I, if you watch the bootleg of the show, which I'm almost positive is the show's final performance. Cause that audience is like fucking cheering for everything. They cheer the moment the song's over. Like they won't let them continue with the scene. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is definitely a, a, um, a shift. The, the, in, you know, the, 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 um, the energy definitely takes a shift when that song starts. Yeah. Well, so set the scene for us in this song, come up to my office. What is happening on Lestage? Well, we are in the midst of Leo's trial and the prosecutor, Hugh Dorsey, is having girls who work in the factory testify and say, it's, it's saying things and that Leo may or may not have done. We are led to believe at this point that perhaps he did, perhaps, I, mm-hmm. uh, that he you know, touched them inappropriately. He would invite them up to his office. And instead of just having the girls, you know, sing testify that for three minutes by themselves it's dramatized leo gets up from his from in in musical theater dreamland and uh performs this song where he is the he is what they're calling him he is a predator he is uh he's you know come up to my office you know we'll drink we'll have you know never overtly saying necessarily you know i'm gonna sleep with you but you know that's definitely where it's leading yeah it's i mean Yes, it never. He never says, "Hey, come up to my office so I can finger bang you." It's all, right. it's all sly. He talks about we're gonna dance. I'll give you some alcohol. It'll be great. It's you know, just true predator stuff. And what makes it so thrilling is that musically it's so exciting, and you get to. And in addition to watching this actor, you know, strut his fucking stuff, it is a musically compelling song because it's you know like a. It's like almost like a vaudeville number almost. It's very like it's something that would come out of the Lacusa Wolf Wild Party, that this kind of song. That's very apt. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of heat to it. Um, and it also like it does, it's it mostly lives in the basement of the actor's register. Like it's very low for the most part until the very end. You know, he it's which makes him even kind of scarier and depending on your fetish, a little sexier. Well, right, and it, especially in the uh, in the original with Brent Carver, who is a phenom- as we've said, a phenomenal actor, and has a good voice. You know, not a maybe a gr- had to have a great voice, but he has he had a a voice, and it's interesting to see because he's been he's been that kind of actory kind of talk singing, you know, pattery sound for a lot of his earlier stuff, and then all of a sudden you hear this like it is it is almost it is sexy, yeah, in a, in a very like specific way. Oh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, baby. yeah, it, he it, he enters into an area of his register that he doesn't get into before. And all of a sudden you're like, who is who's this guy? Hello. Right. I, it may be just because I watched it last night with a friend. But have you ever seen the movie Down With Love? No, it's a shame. It's a great movie. Ewan McGregor, Renee Zellweger, 
David Hyde Pierce and Sarah Paulson. It's like a spoof of the Doris Day, Rock Hudson, 60s sex comedies. But David Hyde Pierce uh, plays sort of like a nebbishy editor. And he's always trying to, you know, get with Sarah Paulson, who also wants to get with him. But he's just he keeps messing it up. And his big come to Jesus moment is it towards the end of the movie where she she's pissed at him and she slaps him. She goes, you're just like every other man. I thought you were different, but you're just like every other man slaps him. And he goes, oh, I'm just like every other man. And he like steps, uh, brings his shoulders back. He kisses her and then he drops his voice. But he goes, let's uh, go inside for about 10 minutes. And she was like, okay. And like, they go away, which is, you know, the fact that it's a 60s spoof, they get away with it. I'm telling you, if you watch the movie, it makes sense. But Watching David Hyde Pierce all of a sudden like drop down two octaves and like lead with his dick first. You're like, okay, David Hyde Pierce, I wasn't thinking of making out with you before, but now I kind of am. And it's like in spite of yourself, even though they're dangerous, even though they're problematic, whatever. Like there's something about the like smoothness and the deepness in which Brent Carver does that number that just makes you go, ooh, I hate how much I want to be there right now. Why don't you come up to my office? Got a bottle of wine and the cocaine pop. Why don't you come up to my office where it's nice and cool and the blinds are dropped? If you could maybe swing by, honey, we could turn that bad old clock is stopped. If you came, if you came, if you came, if you came to my office. I know this new dancer they're doing in Manhattan. I'll get you dancing like you've never done before. And I'll give you things that they sent me from Manhattan and if you like well, I got more and I got more as future productions have done it they make it more overtly monstrous uh, Bertie Carville, who did the Dodmore Warehouse production he does not lean into the sexuality of it and if you watch the video of Jeremy Jordan doing it at Avery Fisher Hall he really like makes it a point to be physically aggressive with these with these young women and so all that's gone so it's just immediately troubling which is fine but i prefer the gray area if only because it keeps you awake it keeps you interested that was exactly what i was about to say is i was like you know there's a difference between what is realistic and what is enjoyable to watch on a stage yeah i'm like I don't know. I, I am, I've talked about this many times. I don't like being preached to. I like mostly because 95% of the politics that get preached in shows today, I'm like, yeah, no, I agree with you. Stop yelling at me. Like I can't, I tell me a story with characters that I can feel some empathy towards. And when I get, when everything gets put into such very simplistic colors for me, I'm like, do you think I'm dumb? I know the rest of these bitches in the audience are dumb, but do you think I am dumb? I am not, sir. So please like, Give me another shade, shading besides red, blue, and green. Give me some fuchsia, you asshole. And not enough shows do that anymore. Some do. I don't want to generalize. Some do, but not enough. And in something like Parade, which definitely can be uh, guilty of, you know, coloring the coloring book with too many primary colors, that is a song where you're like, oh, now we have mauve. And it's great. And then, you know, uh, then if you do that number... And you just do a very basic purple. I'm like, no, 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 no. This used to be mauve before. Or like this used to be lavender. And now you're just giving me the fucking eggplant purple that my mom gets from Bed Bath & Beyond. No, 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 no. No, it, exactly. It, it, it makes it 
it makes it more new. I think it does make it more nuanced in that way for sure. Than other than just like, Oh yeah. Predator bad. Really? I wasn't aware. You don't say that that's as hot a take as Reba McIntyre is a good singer. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about like good. But theaters. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Keep talking. No, no, I, I go ahead. <laughs> so that's the problem with our delay. Jonathan is like, I, you don't talk for two seconds, so I get in there, but then you start talking because my, my delay doesn't get to you until uh, two seconds later, and then we just keep driving. So I'm always like, no, I'm cutting you off. I didn't mean to, I swear. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say, and then you piggyback on this, and then I won't say anything until you tell me that you're done because I don't trust this motherfucking delay, is good theater is supposed to have is supposed to launch conversations, which like we are having right now, but you and I really aren't debating about anything. We're kind of in agreement about a lot of stuff, unless you're just being a really lovely guest and agreeing with me so I can feel safe in my own home. But that said, like good theater causes sparks debate afterwards. You know, like you go to get drinks, you're like, no, I think like this moment meant that and this moment meant that. The one thing I will give the play slave play a brownie point for, the one thing I'll give them a merit badge for is that that last moment launched a lot of debates with me and my friends afterwards about what that last line meant, what that last scene meant. That said, 80, I, when I say debate, I mean like 85% of us all thought it meant this one thing, but there's a 15% that thought it meant something else. And we would have to talk about it. And I don't think I convinced anyone, but I am, I am still pretty steadfast that that's what the meaning of the last 45 seconds were. But that's the one thing I'll give Slave Play. Uh, t- not enough plays today i think do that though where you walk out and you're like i can't wait to go to you know joe allen get a drink and eat some guacamole and like fucking talk about what this thing meant too often it's like yeah no i know exactly what that meant because you told it to me with the highlighter over all the lyrics and jazz hands yeah i don't yeah that's that's very true I, i'm trying to think of what the last show that i saw that even I feel like maybe like strange loop when I saw that I really was like, not everything is spelled out for me in that show, yeah. which I appreciated. I was all, you know, but it was, but yeah, more shows could be, could spare, you know, you know, a little bit of abstraction will allow you to see, to fill in the blanks yourself almost. Yeah. And like not being so judgmental as a writer And I think so many writers are afraid that audiences will think that just because they wrote a complex character who makes bad choices, they are telling the audience, well, clearly I, the writer, think these are good choices. And it's like, no, 95% of good dramatic stories is about someone making bad decisions and then learning from the bad decisions and hopefully becoming better in the end. But audiences, listen, in some ways we've gotten smarter. In some ways we've gotten stupider. Uh, nuance has become less easy for audiences to take in, which really pisses me off because I think we desperately need it in order for us to have actual conversations in life and understand that no one is one thing. We need to remind ourselves that when it comes to shows, but I don't know, maybe I live in an idealistic world where we have all these musicals and plays, Jonathan, where people are complex and troubled and, and make bad choices and learn and grow. But I guess maybe that's not meant to be. I think Strange Loop happens every five years. Yeah, it's true. Now they're gonna pay attention. So they're gonna ask why, why, why. They're gonna say, I don't know what, I don't know how. Well, they are gonna find out now. They're gonna pay attention. They're gonna yell, set that man free. 
an interesting song in Parade that I want to put a pin in for a second because I want to get back to the trial for a bit is on Rumblin' and a Rollin', which, if you can believe it, when the show came out in 1998, a mm. lot of critics had issues with that song because they were like, what's this song doing in here? This has nothing to do with anything. And I get that in the sense that like, there's, there's no dramatic justification. It's sort of in there to be in there, but it is one of the songs in Parade that has aged the best uh, just because of the perspective of the song and the character singing it. Now, how we get to that song is through the character of Jim Conley. Who's Jim Conley, Jonathan? Jim Conley is a convict, a, uh, an, an, a person of color, and he... The authors very heavily want us to believe that he actually committed the crime. And I think historically, it's he, I believe there is a lot of evidence to the fact that he actually did kill Mary Fagan. But yeah. um, they definitely they definitely want you to know that. And he gets a deal with the the prosecutor to to testify that he helped Leo uh, dispose of the body of Mary Fagan which is pretty much said to be not true. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, the the what happened and who did it is still very much up in the air because the people who think it's Leo Frank, it doesn't matter how much evidence comes out that shows that it's very possible he didn't do it. They won't believe it. They're like, no, 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 I, I don't care. I don't care. And the truth is like, there is no amount of evidence that defiantly says that he is innocent there's just too much evidence to show that he can't be complete like it's not crystal clear that he's guilty either like there's enough stuff that implicates him as enough stuff that exonerates him at the same time you know what i mean there's and nuance sort of- nuance yes and the same thing with jim conley the one thing with jim conley is uh a man I, I have his name written down somewhere who i think was like a watch boy or something at the time uh said on his deathbed that Alonzo Mann on his deathbed claimed that he saw Jim Conley drag Mary Fagan down to the basement. And he never said anything for fear of his life, especially because once it became the Leo Frank brigade, like you, there, you could not say otherwise without fear of like getting beaten within an inch of your life. If you even implied that you might think it could have been someone else, people would fucking come at you. So he claims that he saw Jim Conley, but then Mary Fagan's descendants are like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's Leo Frank. But yes, Jim Conley is, he, I think is the first historically uh, the first black man to be a key witness in the trial of a white man, especially in terms of a death sentence, a death sentence for the white man. So it was a big deal in that respect, but so much of his story never lined up and like all it took was a bit more investigation. The other thing, another reason why like it's hard to concretely say what happened is that the investigators fucked up this investigation so much, so much evidence got compromised because they would give evidence to newspapers so they could report on it. So like very important fingerprints got compromised and they couldn't dust for fingerprints anymore. And we're still like, this is the early 1900s. So, you know, DNA as evidence is still very much the prehistoric age, but like they had fingerprints. They knew what to do with that. And the fact that they couldn't do that anymore is just a testament to how much they fucked up. So basically it all just became about public opinion and painting a story. And Jim Conley was the key witness and he has the great song. That's what he said, which is him 
telling what happened. And what I love about this song is how scary it becomes, how uh, much fervor there is in it. And then the original actor's portrayal of it. I need to find his name because there is a there are times when he's retelling the story uh, where there's so much anger in his voice. And part of me wants to believe, I could be 100% wrong, but part of me wants to believe that it, it's twofold. One is that he, Jim Conley, was entirely capable of killing Mary himself because as you mentioned, like the show doesn't outwardly say that he did it, but more that he is very much a possible, like a suspect and they choose not to pursue it because they say like, we've had, we've lynched too many black men. We need something new. People will not be satisfied with a black guy did it, Uh, which who knows how much of that is actually true, but that is what they claim. Rufus Bonds Jr. Uh, So part of me thinks that when he does things like the just throw on the ground, um, or the he has another are these stupid when he goes these stupid rednecks never gonna know like he shouts it through his teeth with such venom that I feel like it's showing that Jim Conley is capable of that kind of rage while also uh, some of his own like anger at the community of like I'm gonna be back on the chain game in a few months anyway the system is broken for me and I hate all of you anyway so I don't care if I'm putting Leo Frank away like I just like I hate all of you I hate all of you so I, I like to see that that's, I like to think that there's some of that anger seeping through in his performance. I could be totally just projecting and he was like, I don't know, just Hal told me to go big. So I went big, but maybe that's it. And I, if I were to direct it, that, I would tell my Jim Conley, like, you love being the center of attention, but also you hate why you're here and what brought you here. And like that, this is going to change nothing for you. You are going to go back to what you knew after this trial, which is where we lead to rumbling and rolling. He's back on the chain gang. Um, and like, you know, just let some of that, let some of that venom come through, but yeah, you know what I'm talking about? You know, with those line readings, which ones I'm talking about, where like, it's just, it's, it gets very angry. Oh, absolutely. And it, I think that's a very apt, like, um, you know, look at the performance from like, I mean, obviously we don't know any idea what goes into what exactly went into it. You could exactly what you said. You could be like, Oh, Hal told me to be big, whatever. Yeah. But it does, it does definitely come across that he has there is like an internal rage which could works for both the idea that he could have killed mary as well as the idea of exactly you know i'm still a black man in the south in the early 1900s i am convicted of another crime what's what do i have to lose at this point yeah pocket and there's plenty more of that i got wealthy friends and family and i might be dumb and fat and i got rich folks out in brooklyn if i need somewhere to go and these stupid rednecks never gonna know i famously don't like children on my stage i have liked maybe three shows that have had children in them and this show has two moments with children one that i like and one that i don't I like the factory girls. I think they all sound beautiful and they're very sparsely used. I'm going to get hated for this. I think the song is a bop, but I don't care for it all that much. And I don't like watching children do it is um, the picture show uh, song that Mary and Frankie Epps sing. Is that what it's called? Picture show? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like she's a bop. She's cute enough, but like, 
I don't like listening to it because Lord knows I love me some Christy Carlson Romano. Ren Stevens, she's an icon. We went to the moon in 1969. But there's something about that like child, like go on, go on, go that I just can't deal with. And it's not her fault. She's doing exactly what she's supposed to be doing. It's just a, it's a chemical thing in me that I hear a 14 year old girl singing through her nose, just like obnoxiously. And I can't get into it. It's why I've never been able to listen to 13 all the way through. Sorry, JRB can't do it. No, that I, yeah, it, I wouldn't say picture show is the song that I, I mean, it is a, it is a, as we said, a Bob, but it is not definitely the song that I listen to. It's, it's like, oh, I've listened to that. We'll move on now. Yeah. And yeah. it probably on some level is because of, is because of that. Not that they're not doing a great job, but they are doing, like you said, exactly what they were asked to do. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I, if I'm, if I'm watching the show, I get, I will sit through it because it serves two purposes. One, it allows us to, you know, see Mary in her natural habitat before she goes missing and maybe supposed to make us like her a bit. Doesn't make me like her very much, but you know, we see her, she's saying she's all fine, but then it also comes back again in the trial when we see Frankie testify and uh, talks about the last time we saw Mary, which was during that number. And he completely lies about how it ended because it originally ends with her saying, I have to go get my pay. I'll see you at the picture show. You know, my mom won't let me go with you, which let me go with my friend. So if you're there, wink, wink, very little red riding hood good day mr wolf and then you know frankie goes off and starts flirting with another another girl and then at the trial he's like oh she got up to go and she looked kind of funny and she talked about how mr frank stares at her and she doesn't like it and we as the audience know that that's bullshit because we watched what happened and again it's, it kind of leads you to realize that the show is so determined to show you not so much not to make it a a confusing who done it about Mary Fagan, but just make it such a blatant look how anti-Semitic everyone's being. Look how much they're beating up on poor Leo Frank. This is going to be a tale of woe. And moments like that just make you sit there and go like, but we saw it. We saw what happened. Can't, who, like which one of us can go on that stage and be like, he's lying. That's exactly what I did the first time I listened to the cast album. I went, I got so unrationally mad. <laughs> I was just like, that little you're lying geez. stop it that future neo-nazi is lying and you you know fucking frankie epps if he were alive today he would be on alt twitter he would be talking about you know conspiracy theories and you know he would be getting tattoos on his arms to say that he's cool but if you fucking punch him in the wrong place he cries like a little wimp Ugh, god i will say i do love his breakdown at that's, it don't the, make new sense. that's the new character description for the role that's the new character. Yeah. That's the Eva Van Hoffe production of Parade. Everyone has a cell phone. Frankie Epps is tweeting the entire time. And Mary Fagan is wearing um, Juicy Couture all over her body. <laughs> Are we done with Eva Van Hoffe yet? Have we like decided to be done with him? I would like for that to be the case. I would like for us to get over him. Yeah, I have I I I don't have any opinion on it because I I don't care for that kind of avant-garde kind of stuff myself personally. It just doesn't make me feel anything. I'm mostly bored. But like, yeah, network, I was fucking bored. I just sat there. I'm like, okay, move it along. Uh, View from the bridge. I was bored. Crucible, I wasn't bored because I went in and at that point and I just was like, what you got for me, bitch? Throw it at me. Wolf on stage. Love it. Girl levitating for no reason. Bring it on. The thing about talking about this show is just mostly it's just like picking songs that I love. And the truth is I love most of the songs. 
it's like it's musically so fascinating and compelling and you know there's there's so much beauty and anger like i mean so you have like the it don't make sense funeral sequence there is a fountain filled with blood and it's a beautiful song i mean granted it's the thing that we all do when someone dies especially when someone dies tragically young it's like we then glorify them into this like saintliness of they were the best person that ever lived nothing was ever wrong they wouldn't hurt a fly they were never mean to anybody they they would have cured cancer if they lived two more days and it's like just making them the ultimate but it is a very beautiful song in a lot of ways and I like that they, that, or that they, I like that JRB picks very specific, sometimes childish things to say about her that like made her so sweet. Like she likes cotton candy. She loves when I put ribbons in her hair. Um, she liked, uh, she said funny things. She liked, going, and then of course, Frankie making it all about him. I think she liked the pictures most of all. It's like, you would say that you pompous little neo-Nazi because that <sighs> was, that was what you two connected on. You selfish little micro peen. Um, but then he then he transitions into the anger when he where the sadness becomes monstrous rage, which is something that happens a lot with toxic men when they are not allowed to express their feelings in a way that's cathartic. That becomes very violent emotion or very just not even emotion, very violent rage. And we start to see the danger that's going to befall on Leo starting with the seed getting planted with Frankie and what will eventually spread through the rest of the company like coronavirus. Yes. It was the original coronavirus. Yeah. It don't make sense to me as the original coronavirus. I mean, yeah. But again, like that's also another song where it's like, because it's a, it's literally taking place at a funeral, at a child's funeral. It is so easy to make it like, Ugh, and like one of the things I didn't like about the Donmar production, I'll never forget like Charlotte Tomas being on her knees because they they literally buried her. Like they opened up a trap door in the floor, put the coffin in the ground, and Charlotte Tomas doing like the not my child, don't put her on the ground kind of actions. Like they had to restrain her. And she's on the ground, and she looks up like on all fours and she goes, She loved when I put ribbons in her hair. And I'm like, that's a bit much. We're already at a 13-year-old's funeral singing about how she liked cotton candy. Can we maybe get Charlotte Demois off the ground? Yeah, it is definitely a song and a moment that can be very easily overplayed. Yeah. I have another question for you, Jonathan. I've realized now with my emotions and these things, am I a monster? I just said that it was a bit much for a mother to be on the ground sobbing and heaving while her... T- barely teenage child who was raped and murdered got put into the ground. I'm like, you're being a bit much, dear. Am I a monster? <laughs> well, it takes all kinds to make the world go round, darling. Listen, my arms are simply too small and weak to push the world forward myself. I need someone else to do that for me. <laughs> but I'll sit here on the side and tell you how to make how to do it better. Oh my lord. But yeah. talking about the mom. Oh yeah, that mom. I the first time I heard her song in the trial mm-hmm. and and i and you know i was younger then so i maybe and a little less worldly in terms of musical theater and like a twist on in a song mm-hmm. so when she gets to that whole song and then the the tag of it is just so i forgive you jew yeah i literally almost fell out of my chair yeah it's fucking it that song is the if you could see her of parade 
I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Like pretty much like beat for beat. Uh, although this one's sad. And if you could see her is you know more humorous, but yeah, like she went, she's gone through this terrible thing. And in her, the other thing about parade that like is so horrifying. And I think they actually do really well is they don't paint the Southerners as like, well, except for, with the exception of some of the politicians, but like they don't treat the people of Atlanta like monstrous villains. They are people like when Leo gets convicted at the end of act one, the cakewalk they do at the end, like it's a moment of jubilation for them. They're like, we did it. It happened. He like justice has been served. And then the reason why the lynching end up ends up happening is because his sentencing got overturned and he was just going to lead a life in prison. He wasn't going to get uh, killed anymore. And the people of Georgia were like, what are you talking about? Like to them, they're like, no, 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 no. He did this to them. He did this. And so they put, you know, justice in their own hands and did their own monstrous thing. But like in their eyes, they are heroes. And so Mary's mom thinks she's being like a God loving woman and doing and turning the other cheek and like being a forgiving person. But we see from the outside, like, sure, she may think she's being forgiving, but she's still a hateful bitch. So actually, no, I take it back. I'm not a monster. I'm still going to tell that bitch she was being too much at her own daughter's funeral. It's about your daughter, not you, ma'am. Sit down. Do it alone, Leo. Now there's the right idea. Make me feel as useless as you always have. Do it alone, Leo. What could a woman do? After all, so many people love you. They're dancing in the streets, Leo. Only you know how to change the feeling. On a human level, I understand what you're going through, but at the same time, you from a from a like outsider's perspective, I also see what a what a ultimately hateful person you're being. Yeah, yeah, and that's sort of the thing is you can see that hate in almost everyone. The only two people you don't really see it in is Leo and Lucille. Leo is too busy, you know, defending himself, and Lucille's too busy, you know, being a woman on a mission that. We, I wish we could see some of that, like that hate. We see, we see anger. I mean, it's one of the things I actually like about the "Do It Alone" song at the top of Act Two. Again, the way that, the way that Carly Carmelo is like, after all, so many people love you. They're dancing in the streets, Leo. Like, it's so fucking pissed. And again, I can't do her southern. I can, I can only make it Irish Scottish. They're dancing in the streets, Leo. It is a very specific accent. Like yeah. choice of accent that she's doing in the, is in this role. I hate them tell them proud. But, but and I would also say like that's a song where the passion she gives it is extremely justified because she is stuck by him this entire time. And if you ever watch B-roll footage of the show, they have some B-roll footage of that. That's what he said. And like you watch everyone in the spectators, you know, box like you know gyrating do whatever they are and she's like the only one sitting still and she's trying really hard to like stay composed and you can tell that it's getting to her not just like the testimony but everyone's reactions around her so like she has to deal with the same shit he does and act two begins and he's like no i'm gonna clear my name and whatever and you know don't get don't be a part of this go home and she's like yeah sure do it alone yeah because they know this hasn't affected me in any way you pompous beta male and so i like that I like that energy she has, and I think it's justified at that point. Um, yeah, that's all I have to say. I just, I like when she tells off her husband. 
yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of like, sh- and maybe this is because it's not wholly his show, JRB. I think Lucille is one of the more interesting characters, female characters mm-hmm. in a JRB musical. Yeah. Uh, and that probably comes down to the book writer, Alfred Urey. You know, he writes, he has written some wonderful female characters. And, mm-hmm. um, but, but exactly, it's, it is that thing of like, she, yes, she is doing this in like a way of like, Get, helping her husband those sort of you know it, it is differential to the man because that's the time period mm-hmm. especially you know so but she still has a lot i mean she does have the the gumption you know she goes to the she goes to the the fucking you know governor's mansion and basically you know <laughs> gets an audience with him just out of yeah. sheer force of will yeah i love that pretty music is a song that is about two minutes too long but I do like that she shows up and he's like, oh, yeah, you're Leo Frank swap. It's fine. No one will judge you here. Have a dance with me. And she literally shouts, Carolee, God bless her. She's like, no more dancing. You must reopen the case. And everyone just like stops. And I get it. Like if I were at a party and someone said that to me, I'm like, excuse me, bitch. I'm like, I'm going to go get more punch. I don't know what you're doing. But I love that she's just sort of she doesn't care. If she's a killjoy. She's like, no, no, no. Enough of this bullshit. The South has not risen again. What like we this this miscarriage of justice has happened and I will not let it stand and I will make sure that people remember that they did the wrong thing. So I like that about her. I think the issue with parade from this perspective, because everything we're saying sounds super compelling and it is in its own way, but it all kind of gets lost in the shuffle because it's trying to do a lot of things. It's trying to show you all the things about the Leo Frank trial and aftermath and the, uh, you know, anger and the hatred and the anti-Semitism of it all and the politicalness of it all, while also then trying to have an arc for them as a married couple falling back in love with each other and her kind of growing up and coming into her own. And that's a lot to cover. So you really need to have a very specific focus of like, okay, what what is our primary goal? Because if you have the primary goal, everything else can sort of fall into place after that. I would argue a slightly stronger parade is Lucille is the lead character and Leo is the secondary lead because she doesn't really become a lead lead until act two. She's not on stage much in act one. And I think if it's her story and her kind of coming into her own and how she has to grow up in order to fight for her husband and then when she ultimately loses what she has to carry on with her to survive in the end that's a wonderful story now let's add on top of that that a benefit is that she and her husband actually fall in love with each other by the end of the show that's also wonderful and then it all comes under the framework of the leo frank trial but the show wants all of its eggs in this omelet and thus it's a very large omelet that doesn't totally fit the pan yeah i mean I'm not going to lie necessarily. And it's nothing I think I find Lucille a lot more compelling than Leo, but I don't think that, I think that's almost by, it feels almost by design because Leo is kind of unlikable in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? It's a killjoy. Yeah. Which not to say that being likable is, has it, I need a main character to always be likable. I don't, but it's just, she's like, what we're saying, what we're saying is I think a lot of what she goes through in the second act, if it were more threaded through, I think would, and she, like you said, she was the main character. It was through her perspective. I think it would. Yeah. You're, you're, I think you're right about that. Thank you. Yeah. A character doesn't have to be likable. We need a reason to watch them. And we don't really have a reason to watch Leo in act one, other than the fact that he is the poor schmuck 
at the center of all this. I also don't want to minimize like the tragedy of what happened to him, but I am saying this in light because this show is so goddamn depressing that if we give everything the gravity it deserves, like our people are going to tune out five minutes into this episode. But yeah, he, Leo is not a compelling presence for the majority of the show. He's a very endearing presence and someone like Brent Carver who just like breaks your heart just looking at him makes it a lot easier but it's why like you know we have the upcoming gal two-week gala happening at city center in the fall with ben platt and michaela diamond who i think she is phenomenal casting uh ben i hope succeeds i think there's a lot about him that could really do well i am fearful of some of his ticks that are going to get in the way but also it's a two-week gala who cares it's not like full-blown production but half the battle is won if you have a care if you have an actor in the role who just you look at and immediately you want to hug. You know, it's what made mm-hmm. Sally Murphy such a phenomenal Julie Jordan. Every time you just like looked at her, you wanted to hug her. And it's what makes Brent Carver such a compelling Leo. You're like, I don't like, can I make you some tea? Like, you just look like you are about to fall apart. Yeah, I stand by all of this. I think, I think I found the way into Parade. And if only JRB and Alfred Geary would give it one more go around. I know they added and cut some stuff for the Donmar production, but if they would let me in there, I think we can make it even better. And I also, I think it's what, you know, not to get on a Brent Carver soapbox for a minute, but I will. Please do. Please uh, do. I I think that's what made him such a compelling figure on stage in general, is that he was somebody who, regardless of what the part, you know, if, you know, I mean, because like even in Kiss of the Spider Woman, Melina can be very annoying oh, <laughs> like, yeah. as a character, like. But because it's Brent Carver and who like grounds it in something, you just you do just want to hug him. You know what I mean? And it's it is a very it is a skill to do that as a performer, and it it, it takes a lot of craft to do. Yeah, Brent Carver when he speaks, sometimes it sounds like he could cry at any moment, and it works so well for Melina, who is the epitome of disassociation. Like that's what that whole show is about. It's. If ever, if you could sum up Kiss of the Spider-Woman in one pop culture reference, it's Kimmy Schmidt, I'm not really here. I'm not really here. And that can be really frustrating, especially, you know, when serious things are happening on stage and Molina just is constantly trying to make light or or look the other way. It's so easy to make that character like, uh, you know, over the top, flamboyant and annoying. But he is such a compelling presence. He finds the humanity and the raw emotion of everything. So even when he's being dry and he's being fabulous as Molina, there's such hurt there that it's always just fascinating to watch. He has a great line when they get food poisoning and uh, Valentine, uh, it's Valentine, right? That's the name of the other guy. Yeah. He basically Mm -hmm. poops himself due to the poisoning and Molina has to clean him up. And uh, Valentine's like, you don't have to do this. And Brent Carver at this point, Melina is so in love with Valentine, and we all know this. And so he does this for the man he loves. And we can see sort of the earnest uh, dignity of it all. But when Valentine says, you don't have to do this, Brent Carver just says, oh, so dryly. I don't plan to make this my profession anytime soon. And it's so funny, but he doesn't do it like a Maywash, like, well, I don't plan to make it my profession. Uh, he does it like a human who's also slightly breaking. So it's both funny and and heartfelt at the same time. It's wonderful. That's the magic of a beautiful actor like Brent Carver and everything that he did so well. And it's a shame he didn't want to come to Broadway more often. 
because I think we could have used him. And I think a lot of actors of my generation and younger generations could learn from someone like him and how he inhabited a character. I agree. He's definitely one of my, um, you know, in, if I had a vision board of actors, he's, he's definitely one of them that I, you know, aspire to as a performer myself. Yeah. I mean, that kiss of the spider woman, Tony performance, just the minute and a half before, or maybe it's even only a minute before Cheetah comes on where it's him and uh, Anthony Cravello. He is so captivating. And I just want to show that to all musical really theater is. students. Yeah. Like what? Like there's so many musical theater performers who were on Broadway before, you know, fucking Be More Chill came onto the scene and Dear Evan Hansen came onto the scene. Like, check out that performers of the 80s and 90s and see what they did because they did something great. Worth checking out. Yeah. Hot take. I know. I, 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 I just turned 30 this year. and But I am working with a lot of people right now who are, you know, I mean, our youngest in our cast is 19. And just like the, the, I sometimes I will make a reference to something before, you know, the year 2000 and they just stare at me with like blank eyes. And then I'm like, Oh, that's right. You don't have my breath. You're like, Oh, that's right. Uh, Wicked was your first musical, which is, there's no shade on that, but you know, it is the depth of knowledge sometimes isn't there. Yeah. It's not the lack of depth that, that bothers me. It's the lack of wanting the depth of knowledge that bothers me. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to write about this at some point because it really fucking bothers me. It's not just young fans and young performers. There's also sometimes, there's, there's also mentality of musical theater performers of some where it's like, I don't really pay attention to musical theater. I just kind of do it, which I say I've never ever seen a football or basketball player get asked, like, who's your favorite player of all time? And you're like, oh, I don't follow this sport, man. I just do it. Like, no, it's their life. And you don't have to, like, know everything about Broadway like I do. Believe me, I'm a freak of nature. I get that. But you should, if this is what you're doing, it like, this is a this is a kind of profession that you can only ever really, as a performer especially, you can only ever make your mark or continue success the more you study up on it. It's such a fascinating history and such a complex and rich history of of shows, of writers, of performers who broke ground in ways that people take for granted now. And the more you expose yourself to other kinds of talents and other kinds of styles, like the better you become as a performer, as a writer, and as a fan. And you, again, you don't have to know everything, but like I get really pissed off when people go, oh, so-and-so is my ultimate favorite. What they did on that stage was extraordinary. And I'm like, listen, you, you are clearly someone who has never watched Barbara Harris's Tony performance in the apple tree. You are clearly someone who has never watched like a bootleg of Patti Lapone and Evita because that is the kind of greatness that like comes at you through the computer screen. It does like, it's so mind-blowingly different and, and has left a mark all these years and paved the way for people after them. But like, I can't tell you that what so-and-so is doing in such and such is nearly on the same level. It can be fine. It can be presentable. It can be pleasant, but it is not extraordinary. And people who use that word about things that I find mediocre are people who have not expanded their uh, knowledge of anything and choose not to. They would rather know every single person who replaced in Mean Girls than listen to a single score from 1965. And I don't get that, Jonathan. I just don't. 
I heard you once say on some one of the episodes uh, the term talent alien, mm-hmm. and that's and, and I ever since I, I heard you say that I use that all the time. There we don't. It is important, you know, because I mean, commodity is is a, and you know, and manufacturing are terrible are things that just are the a lot of the industry now, and we don't get enough of. And and then you so when you do bring up somebody like a Barbara Harris to somebody who is raised and finds their joy in the mean girls, the be more chills of it all. They're like, this person was on Broadway, you mm-hmm. know, like that she, she, you know, she's not a good singer, quote unquote, which I think she's a fine singer. Um, but it, you know, the, it's like, I don't, I, I would agree with you. And the, the, the lack of wanting to learn more gets on, gets on my, gets up my crawl a little bit ever, you know, I try yeah. to not lead with that, but sometimes, you know, it is, there, there's some days yeah. you just want to go, come on. I don't understand why people don't want to know more. So like, and again, I think if you're going to be a professional in this industry, you also have to be a fan of it. You don't have to be like the most insane fan, but you have to like it and you have to want to know more about it. Otherwise, why get into it? It's so heartbreaking. There's so much rejection. It's an inconsistent life that lead the things you're going to be in are not always going to be good and you're striving for something is it just to constantly be employed or is it like are you striving to achieve something to make something of yourself and of the things you do because there is a lot there is a lot that does not make the impact that people think i'll put it to you this way every season there becomes the show that all the youngins all the gen zers obsess over and it replaces what they were obsessed with the previous year now i have my obsessions all the time but nothing ever gets replaced they get added along to if you are so easily taken with beetlejuice the year after you were so easily taken with mean girls which was the year after you were so easily taken with Irvin hansen those shows are not making the impact on you that you think they are because otherwise those shows would not be replaced by the next thing they would stand alongside them and what has become very clear is that they are, they are being replaced in these young people's minds, whether they realize it or not. Because to put all of your mental attention from one show to the next so like completely, th- it just shows you how flippant and how not lasting a lot of these works are and these performances are, you know? Sure. No, I agree. And it's why, uh, you know, performance like Brent Carver in Kisses of the Spider-Woman or in Parade mm-hmm. is so like, you know, it is, it, it's, singu- it's singular in its way. And that's, yeah. we don't, you know, and, 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 and you remember it, it lives on, lives with you, you know, long after he unfortunately is gone. Mm-hmm. And we're back to parade way to bring it back. Uh, no, you're, <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It's, and there are personalities like that in the original company of parade people who are talented vocalists and strong actors or super talented actors with you know fine vocals and who are able to carry through the emotions and the power uh and maybe don't sound perfect but they sound interesting and they're compelling uh presences and i think that's i love the the one that i think of uh is uh we were talking about uh uh, mary's mom jessica malaski i think she has such a she's a wonderful actress and a wonderful singer. And it's so like, every time I hear her on a recording, I'm like, Oh, that's Jessica Malaski. I know mm-hmm. immediately. And it's like, and it's like, you know, I can't say that for, you know, I don't know how many, you know, you know, whatever Mormon cast they're on, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. or, you know, something like that, you know, it's, it's, it's just fat or even like, 
um, the the guy who, um, who the actor who plays the old soldier who also I think doubles as the judge. He has such a unique sound to him and it's rich and it's beautiful. And it sounds, you know, you just don't hear those kind of things like that very often. And of course, I mean, the Carol Lee of it all. I mean, there is a reason she's, you know, a national treasure. Yeah. Why she's still she, sticking around. Yeah. It's. So I was also looking up some other people in the cast, like Brooks Annie Morber, who unfortunately doesn't do Broadway anymore. But like even her, I every time I hear her sing in the Factory Girls, I'm like, yep, that's uh, what's her face from Wild Party. Uh, Nadine, that's Nadine from Wild Party. Very, and like Brooks and Morbo actually has a voice that I feel like would get hired today, but it's still a rather unique sounding, like pure sound, if that makes sense. You know? No, like, yeah, it is, it is I a, agree. It is a clean sound, but it is a it is a very unique kind. And she adds character to it. Like she's much more solemn in Parade than she is in Wild Party for good reason. She plays the ultimate uh, annoying buzzkill in Wild Party, intentionally so. But yeah, like Justin Malaski has this rich alto. It's it's smooth. It's velvety. Uh, yeah, it's th- these wonderful personality of voices that start to get phased out as we get further into the 2000s. Every now and then one pops in. We get a Katrina like we get a Carmen Cusack. But like Katrina like and Carmen Cusack have the good fortune of popping on Broadway in roles that ta- that fit them so well. And it happened to them later in their careers, like once they hit 40 and like in a just world, Carmen Cusack would be a four-time Tony winner by now. Like she would have been in a million shows during the 2000s, just the way her career led her in London for the most part. But like still like by 2007, she should have absolutely been leading Broadway shows here. It's, it's, it's frustrating sometimes when I see this anyway, let's uh, do one more song and then we'll wrap it up. I think we need to do all the wasted time. I mean, yeah, can use in the mold of JRB's favorite format for a a romantic duet between a man and a woman. What's the format? Man sings, woman sings, sing together in a bridge, and then they sing the chorus again. It's almost every one of his, like, uh, like, I'd give it all for you does that. Um, Next 10 minutes does that. Yeah. Uh, uh, What's the one million miles to one yeah, seven million. yeah that that one i know which one you're talking about yeah yeah, yeah he um i mean it's effective i don't i you know why break a why break a you know why make a new bike or you know there's a metaphor there go with it why make a new bike um no i feel you because yeah the way that when they join together it's it's in counterpoint at first that then goes into unison and then into harmony and mm. it's lovely i mean it's a great way to show the Sondheim uh, mentality of choral singing and duets, which is Sondheim has a real issue with people singing in unison unless it's dramatically uh, justified. He talks about all the time with Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. He's like, did everyone have a good time with the clam bake? I'm like, yes, they did, Steve, shut up. And (laughs) he, you know, it's what leads us to the counterpoint in Prelly's Miracle Elixir. But I think with, all the waste of time and all these other duets, it is maybe a formula, but I think you can dramatically say that it works because it's two people who are in the same chapter and then slowly by the end of the song getting on the exact same page. Because while they have the same general feelings, they're not necessarily saying it exactly identical to the other person. And then when they join, they're joining in counterpoint because again, they're like, sort of on the same page, if not the same line, but then they get on the same line because it's like, 
they are so one with each other that they are finishing each other's sentences. And I think that is absolutely understandable and worthwhile. But I, I realized I never realized that formula until now, maybe because I never like actually dissect Jason Robert Brown all that much. So it's good. You know, know what? It's funny you say that. I was literally just having a debate with our music director for Mamma Mia, who doesn't like JRB's music. And we were talking about things about this kind of, and, and he was like, you know what? I guess I just don't analyze it just that much. I just, he just finds, I just find him distasteful. That's his opinion, not mine. <laughs> That's my friend, not me. I swear, I swear. Um, no, listen, I, there is absolutely no songwriter, composer, or lyricist out there on Broadway whose work I think is like, 10 out, 10 out of 10 every single time across the board. Uh, you know, even Miss Tesori, much as I think the score to Shrek is actually quite strong, there are not, not every song in Shrek I think is great. Sondheim, listen, I don't like Roadshow and I think the Frogs is bad. So everyone has their thing. Th- not everything that Jason Arbor Brown has written I have loved, but when he's written something that I do love, I love it very, very, very much. And there's, I especially in love duets or love moments, it's the small things that really like flutter my heart. So for example, in um, La Passeggiata in Light in the Piazza, what really gets me, like what makes my basement flood is when he's trying to say your skin is like milk and he goes the your milk, your milk is. And when she sings, when Kelly O'Hara sings, my skin, cause she's getting it now. And he goes, ah, your skin is like milk. I fall on my seat every time. It's the tiny moment of Kelly O'Hara going, my skin, like she gets it and she knows what he's trying to say now. And then in all the waste of time, it's just, it's when Brent Carver just sings, look at you. And then the following line is, how can I not be in love with you? Like that line is wonderful. It's just the look at you. I'm like, ah, fuck me up. J.R.B. Brent Carver with all of this. I love it so much. It's so small. It's so small, so sweet, so simple. And it just, because it's the small stuff that makes you fall in love with someone, not like the big romantic gestures that's all cute in the moment but it's the i don't know it's like the it's the them just looking at you it's the them recognize knowing what you're trying to say and saying my skin you know no i agree and i think um it all and it does belay you know with without the obvious symbolism of the original production with the tree and everything but it does belay the the ultimate tragedy of what's going to happen because we have this beautiful moment of true like understanding getting on the same page for the first time like completely getting on the same page for this for the first time and then ultimately it's all just taken away from both of them yeah like right as it's getting good it gets taken away mm-hmm. exactly such a, such a tragedy but she gets to move on and again and again if she were the real protagonist, if we really kind of decided to make her our lead, I think the ending would be even more fulfilling. It's an already, I think, rather satisfying, if tragic ending with her moving on and then our reprise of the old Red Hills of Home. But I think it would be even better if we just really stuck to our, stuck to our guns and said, Lucille is our... L Woods of Parade. See, now I just have an image of Carolee Carmelo playing L Woods. Carolee Carmelo is a Paulette and we all know it. No, I don't disagree, but. Yeah, I know. Imagine, imagine a 30 year old Carolee Carmelo playing L Woods. The most vibrato in all the land. 
Yeah. As a person with a lot of vibrato myself, I identify heavily. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's healthy. She's never sharp. She's never flat. I, I will always give her major credit. I was at opening night of scandalous and yes, that show was turd, but she worked so hard. Like it, I can't roughly tell you it was a great performance because it was all just about the workmanship of it all. It was just, it was physically getting through it, keeping us invested, like giving it her all, but it was impressive. Um, in the same way that Jakina in Paradise Square, I'm like, that is impressive what you're doing. But I think she, uh, you know, you are capable of even stronger acting with better material. Same thing with Carolee Carmelo in Scandalous. I was like, girl, if this show were 50% better, you would, get, you would win the Tony. If it were 100% better, you would become a living legend. But 50% better, you would actually win this fucker. Unfortunately, it was not good. Anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. This has all been lovely, Jonathan. Uh, I think we're, yeah, we were definitely clocking a little over two hours, but uh, won't be a five hour episode. I, I've, I need my audiences to um, come down from the three hours of Sideshow. Well, I also feel like with a show like this, I mean, it's not one that you're going to talk. It's it, again, it's, it's, it's not like the happiest thing to talk about. I mean, yeah. I think we've done a very good job making it entertaining. Sure. Well, it's like, so after Sideshow, which is also very sad subject matter, Sideshow also originally done was a much more like theatrical uh evening and a little more diva worship whereas parade with the hell prince of it all he's like no 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 there's a tree on stage and so it's really hard to be like oh my god i live for this moment in parade it's mostly just like i live listening to parade when i listen to that original cast recording i get my judge all the time uh but yeah it's really hard to watch parade and be like oh yes fuck me up that said, as we know, there was, there was actually talk when the Tony Awards happened in 1999 that Parade might come back because Parade got the most Tony nominations that year uh, with nine. And then they won the Drama Desk for Best Musical and a couple of other things. They won actor, actress, I think book, music, and direction. And then they won score and book at the Tonys. They didn't end up winning musical. They lost to Fosse, another live end production, the last live end production, actually. But there was talk that it might come back and it ended up being not uh, they couldn't get investors to invest in another Broadway mounting, but they could get investors to invest in a national tour, which they did for about 10 weeks. It was supposed to be 16. Once again, could not keep it lasting on the road, uh, but it lives on. We have our Donmar production. We have our Avery Fisher Hall. Now David Geffen Hall concert. A lot of regional theaters do it. Colleges do it. A lot of that score is in the reps of a lot of singers and encores will be doing it in the fall for a two week gala. We have got three questions here, Jonathan. I think you know what the questions are going to be. First question over under or estimated. Do you think the show is overestimated, underestimated or properly estimated? I think properly estimated because I think you get exactly what you get. You know what I mean? When you get, when you see parade, just like, if you know what, if, if you're familiar with the story, then you come to see the show and you're like, yep, that was a sad show with some beautiful music and great performances. I, that's exactly what I was expecting. I, I got, I wanted a sad show, but got a sad show. Yeah. I think it depends on who you talk to. I think some people think that this show is perfect and deserves to be revived. No notes, could totally sell some people who think the show is a mess that doesn't work and some people like us who are like 
there's a lot of greatness in this show. Not perfect, but there's greatness here. Yeah, I agree with that. It dep- it de- it's it's like many things. It, it divides people. Yeah, there's gold to them there, Hills. Not enough to make you a full necklace, but like a tennis bracelet. Uh, next next question. Um, Castaway, who would you like to see in a production of Parade? I actually made notes for this one. I think Brandon Uranowitz as Leo would be very good. Ah, like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, and then I also thought for the um, for the. <laughs> This is maybe typecasting, but here we go. For the uh, prosecutor, uh, Dorsey, I thought Patrick Page would be really good in that role. Yep. He, he's done it, but, you know, there's not very few who do it better. Where did he do it? Well, no, I mean, he's done that type of role oh, before. okay. I was about to say, if Patrick Page did Parade, I'd know about that. No, sure. Absolutely. Uh, I also thought, uh, not now, because I think she's too old, but I think at, like, Fun Home Time, Sydney Lucas would have been a great Mary. Sure, sure, sure. She'd make me like her more um, in that song, and for then, sure. Right, and that's because that was the thing I always thought about her. And then my last one for Lucille, and this might, I, I think, you know what? I would love to see Bonnie Milligan play Lucille. Yeah, bring it on. Yeah, I th- think she's a, she's a, she's a, obviously a very funny performer, but she, I, you know, the best comedy comes from real dr- dramatic guts, gusto, and I would love to see oh, that. Oh, yeah. Anyone else you have in your uh, dream casting? I also thought, you know, Ethan Slater would be a really great Frankie. Yeah, he could play a fun neo-Nazi. Yeah, I just, you know, maybe, maybe it's just the having just listened to him in Assassins. I'm like, yeah, just have him, have him do that, you know? Sure. Uh, I, also, because nowadays, nowadays Frankie also doubles as a lot of times as the young the young soldier. And I'd love mm. to hear him sing the, uh, the Old Red Hills of Home. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard Ethan Slater sing in a long time. And it's mostly been SpongeBob. So I need to hear him sing again where it's not SpongeBob because I'm thinking right. very like in the mask pingy singing, which is unfair to him. I don't know what he sounds like normally. Um, right. But I need a nice round tone on that old Red Hills of home. I need that O to be a deep O, bitch. Uh, the last one I had was I actually thought Danny Bernstein as the governor would be interesting. Like, because he's, because the governor's kind of fun but then also has to have that like seriousness under it all. Yeah. And I think Danny Bernstein is really great at that, at being mm-hmm. fun, but then also having like the, the dramatic gravitas under it all. Sure. I think that's absolutely fair. Uh, is there anyone else that I'd want to see? Yeah, I can't really think of any anymore. My brain is totally fried. I like every person you've mentioned. I think those are good people. I'm glad you showed up prepared on this here day. I've had guests on Jonathan who have been on like, multiple times and I oh no matter what the series is I always ask the question who do you want to see in this show I ask it differently every time but I always ask and every time they're like I knew you were going to say this but I didn't think about it and I'm like why didn't you do your homework you stupid whore so thank you for doing your homework last question the missing link is there anything that you think is missing from the show that will really click it all into place I said this jokingly but maybe a better title ha uh, no, uh, but tree. It's called tree you know, now. I, yeah, tree. Exactly. Uh, no, I I think it's a lot of what we we've we've been talking about. I mean, other than just rewriting the show and making it about Lu- from Lucille's point of view, mm-hmm. I think it's focusing in on making the if if there whenever there's another production like big you know major production, I think the only real way without them going in and overhauling the show again, which as you said, they don't really seem like they want to do. 
uh, is just really focusing in on, you know, the arc of these relationships against all of this craziness that's going on here. I mean, it's, I think all the pieces are there, but they do, they are like, they, like we're saying, they're, they're, they're just not, the puzzle is there. It's just not completed. Yeah. It's, and, and when we talk about this, like, there is so much about Parade that is great. And I do think the show overall does still work. I don't, I do not personally think it works as grandly as others do or as grandly as they wanted it to. And so when we talk about making Lucille the focus, I say this as a way of like, I think that's the way to make this show the powerhouse dynamite show it could become. Because in order for something to be so emotionally compelling, it has to be so specific and you need humans on stage. And I think getting to the humanity of these characters happens a little too late because there's not enough time to get to them. Act One is solely dedicated to the whole like trial and the murder and then the slandering of Leo's name that the Act Two is just about like finding the humanity in the debris, but we need that humanity still in Act One. Um, otherwise it's just like too, ma- too much and a little overwhelming. So that's what we mean when we say the missing link. So yeah, star vehicle for Bonnie Milligan. That's the way to make this thing really the and also, we're gay men, and gay men love a diva finding her spotlight and owning the stage. So, you know, make this funny girl meets Schindler's List, and we're good to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You know, bring in Steven Spielberg to direct it, too. Why not? Sure. Because we just need an, even, <laughs> we need an even heavier hand to make sure we know what emotions to feel. <laughs> Listen, I've talked about it. I really do like the new West Side Story, but if there's one thing I have an issue with Steven Spielberg with, he's like, so you're crying at minute three, second 60, uh, 42, okay? Then you're going to feel uh, nostalgia at minute 12, second 13. Then you're going to cry again at 35, 26. And it's like, Steven, let me have my emotions, please. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Anyway. Um, I wonder what Tony Kushner would have done with a with a revisal of Parade if he would have found a way into it. Ooh, that would be interesting. I mean, knowing him, he like, I don't know, he would have had like the ghosts of the Civil War come in and be characters. <laughs> and talk, and like the ghost of Mary Fagan is going to talk to one of the ghosts of the Civil War in the middle place while the trial is happening. It's like all meta commentary. And then, like, you know, Buddha shows up and does a dance. Like, that's that's like a Tony Kushner musical for you. He's it like, why? Interesting. Yeah. It is interesting how much Mary is in the show, considering how early she dies. I mean, hey, they're like, if we're going to have a goddamn child in the show, we are not going to pay her for 10 minutes of stage time. She will be in this show again. What a wonderful princess track that, that character is. I would love to play Mary Fagan. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I'd I, I, I pay to see it. Yeah. I Listen. I could get murdered. I'm very murderable. I'm desirable that way. (laughs) Joel Kim Booster likes to say, makes a joke when, um, back when he had Grindr, I don't know if he still has now that he's in love, but he would say on his standup a lot, people would say like, but aren't you afraid that someone could kill you if you meet up with them on Grindr? He goes, but see, even if I got killed, I still would be picked. Like he got, like someone decided to murder him. And I'm like, you know, Joel, I feel you. As someone who just had another friend (laughs) Jonathan, as someone who just had another friend get engaged, literally today, all the straights around me are getting engaged, getting married, starting to have the kids. I'm like, I would love for someone to pick me fucking finally. And as Mary Fagan, I would be picked. 
someone would pick me. Oh, honey, I'm with you there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can be the Iola Stover to my Mary Fagan. How does that sound? Perfect. <laughs> you get to live, but I still get picked. All right. Jonathan, this has been a pleasure. Where can people find you if you want them to find you? I am fi- findable on all social media at JS Chisholm 22. And uh, you can find all my ranting, not rantings. What am I saying? All my, <laughs> I mainly do it professional stuff, like what I'm doing, where I'm performing, random videos when I'm l- stuck in a room for a long period of time. Uh, <laughs> you know. As you do. I know that's, as you do, you know, of course. But yeah, and, um, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. If you love musical stuff, you'll like what I put out. If you want to find me, I am on Instagram only, Matt Koplik, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your moms, tell your kids. Uh, join us next week as we cover a slightly lighter show. Uh, it also deals with discrimination, but, you know, in a funner kind of way. I'm, of course, talking about the one musical of Susical, Susical the Musical. And you'll hear a little bit more about Garth Drabinsky and Livent with that one as well with my guest. He knows the the wordings of it a bit better than I do. I'm not a finance person. I can't tell you how it all works. But yeah, so join us next week for Susical. Jonathan, as you know, because you're a famous fan of the pod, we always close out with a Broadway diva. Now here's the tea. We have closed out with Carolee Carmelo before, so we can't close out with her. Uh, but we need to find someone else to close out with. Who should we close out with? How about Jessica Malaski? Read my mind, bitch. Read my goddamn mind. Honestly, it was either her or Charlotte Demoise, and I think that's for another day. So let's do Jessica Malaski. So everyone, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week. Uh, we will catch you with Susical. And here's Jessica to take us away. Bye. And I took a breath and I got my Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theater Directory, a program of Maestro Music. Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.